The Informed Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman and co-host Mike Rogers is a presentation of Informed Fitness Studios, a small family of personal training facilities specializing in safe, efficient, high-intensity strength training. On our bi-monthly podcast, Adam and Mike discuss the latest findings in the areas of exercise, nutrition, and recovery with leading experts and scientists. We aim to debunk the popular misconceptions and the urban myths that are so prevalent in the fields of health and fitness, and to replace those sacred cows with scientific-based, up-to-the-minute information on a variety of subjects. We'll cover exercise protocols and techniques, nutrition, sleep, recovery, the role of genetics in the response to exercise, and much more. On this episode, an in-depth dive into single joint and multi-joint exercise movements with Dr. James Fisher, researcher and senior lecturer in sports conditioning and fitness at Southampton Solent University in the United Kingdom. I think that this debate has come around of, you know, is there a need for these uh, additional single joint exercises or can we get a a lot or all of the same benefits from only multi-joint movements? Um, And if we can, then can we really abbreviate workouts down? And the more abbreviated a workout becomes, the more we might be able to get more people to exercise and and simplify protocols for people that currently perceive exercise to be complicated and, and time consuming. Welcome to the show. I'm really happy to have Dr. James Fisher with us today. It's been a while since we've done the podcast. This is starting our fifth season, and I couldn't be happier to kick it off with Dr. James Fisher. Dr. Fisher is a researcher and senior lecturer in sports conditioning and fitness at Southampton Solent University in the United Kingdom. Uh, Dr. Fisher completed his PhD from Nottingham Trent University, and he has published more than 70 peer-reviewed journal articles relating to exercise physiology and athletic performance. Much of his research considers methodological approaches to resistance exercise, including modalities and advanced training techniques. He has also published critical commentaries challenging existing paradigms and practices that have higher risk of injury and lack evidence of efficacy. So indeed, he has publicly challenged, which I like, the notable academics and fallible processes in an attempt to ensure that scientific publications pertaining to resistance exercise preserve honesty and application. Finally, James has published multiple large review articles aiming to provide trainers and trainees with an evidence-based approach to optimizing resistance exercise for improving muscular strength, hypertrophy, and cardiovascular fitness. So he sees as a priority of his academic position to, to bridge the gap between what science says and what people are actually doing out there in the real world. James also, by the way, was a uh, Great Britain Paralympic basketball coach from 2008 to 2013, including the London 2012 Games. Very cool. He has been a tutor with the UK Anti-Doping Organization and is an IFBB-accredited weight training prescription specialist, and he speaks all around the world. With any remaining time, he, well, he sleeps. No, actually. (laughs) He is a proud husband and father and a competitive cyclist. Welcome, James. Thank you very much, Adam. Thanks for that introduction. It's amazing when I can write them myself and send them across. <laughs> Actually, what, what we're going to talk about today, James, we talked about this earlier. Uh, we want to talk about compound movements versus simple movements. Why don't you just uh, help us define, first of all, the difference between a compound movement and a simple movement, or as otherwise known as multi-joint movement and single-joint movements? 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with a single joint. So a single joint or an isolation movement is a movement normally around one axis or around a single axis. Uh, it's normally uh, a single muscle or muscle group working to perform uh, that movement in a rotary fashion, which is the way the body works. So for example, a knee extension or a, a knee curl, a bicep uh, curl or tricep extension. Um, in contrast, the compound movement has a linear output because it's multiple joints working, uh, but around a rotary fashion but because there are multiple joints the outcome is linear so it's normally a chest press an overhead press a leg press uh, and because it's multiple joints it's multiple it's multiple muscle groups to produce that that movement very good we've covered this before in other episodes but i just wanted to just review that real quick before we get into the weeds here so what is the debate between compound movements and simple movements well, I'll, I guess the debate sort of springs back to where resistance training, uh, as we as we probably currently see it, as as a product of bodybuilding, um, originates from uh, from having a high volume of training, and the perception that we need to target muscles individually as well as lift heavy weights by doing compound movements. Um, and of course, uh, you know, Arthur obviously Arthur Jones obviously said that or suggested that the lats didn't get sufficient stimulus from things like a pull down or a chin exercise because they were the stronger muscle. So there was a need to do a single joint movement in the, in the likes of the uh, the pullover. And we know where that kind of led with Nautilus and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think that this debate has come around of, of you know, is there a need for these uh, additional single joint exercises or can we get uh, a, a lot or all of the same benefits from only multi-joint movements? Um, and if we can, then can we really abbreviate workouts down? Um, and the more abbreviated a workout becomes, the more we might be able to get more people to exercise and, and simplify protocols for um, for people that uh, currently perceive exercise to be complicated and, and time-consuming. Yeah, you know, that reminds me, when you talked about the bodybuilding world, uh, feeling that these single joint or simple movements are necessary to build muscle and create hypertrophy. Hypertrophy is a fancy word for just getting getting big, getting swole. Uh, it reminds me of, a, of an episode we did with a bodybuilder, uh, Doug Brignoli, and uh, he's, he's of the belief that you definitely need to uh, do single joint movements for hypertrophy for sure and, and multiple sets and, and, and large volume uh, and really kind of poo-pooed the idea that you needed compound movements for, for that effect. Yeah, and I think a lot of bodybuilders do this because they, uh, you know, uh, let's take a typical bodybuilding workout of, of you know, very high volume, you know, five to 10 sets of exercises and, and, and hours and hours spent in the gym doing various split routines. Well, if they're going to target a single muscle group or, or only a couple of muscle groups in a workout, but they want to allocate two hours of time to training it, well, they're not going to, they're probably not going to allocate themselves to do 20 or 30 sets of a bench press or a chest press or a shoulder press so they add in multiple single joint movements um, which is understandable for variety and if they feel that that volume is necessary but i think that this is where the question has arisen of, is that volume really necessary uh, we all know the kind of single multiple set debate but but i guess that this is a transitioned into you know this single joint multi-joint exercise um, i know bodybuilders still like the single joint movements but i think for the masses there uh, the evidence points in a different direction okay so speaking of evidence so you did a review article uh, I'll, I'll read it i'll read the title it's called a review of the acute effects of long-term 
adaptations of single and multi-joint exercises during resistance training. Well, why don't we start with a conclusion? <laughs> well, uh, what, what did you end up, we can get, in, you know, we can kind of break down a little bit, but what, what did you ultimately find out when you compared uh, the efficacy of multi-joint exercises versus single joint or a combination thereof? Yeah. So uh, the preponderance of research is done on upper body muscles. So for example, the biceps and triceps, um, most of the measurements are taken on the limb muscles rather than the torso muscles. So that's worth clarifying, first of all, that the conclusions basically are that there, there are no benefits to performing single joint movements in addition to multi-joint exercises. So uh, to put that in context, uh, if you're looking for bicep or tricep growth, then um, performing a multi-joint movement such as a chest press or a lat pull-down will produce, uh, let's say a lat pull-down will produce uh similar growth in the biceps and strength increases in the biceps as a lat pull down and a bicep curl. Uh, and the same thing is true for the triceps. Less has been done to look at the, the muscles of the, of the trunk. Uh, very little has been done to, the, to look at the muscles of the lower body. So those are the conclusions from the paper. Okay. So one of the markers you used to test and compare was this uh, thing called electromyographic activation. Yeah. Otherwise known as what? SEMG? Yeah, SEMG, surface electromography, yeah. yeah. You know, it would be interesting for some of our listeners to understand some of the tests that are actually occurring and how researchers are actually testing these things. So what exactly is that, by the way? So surface EMG is basically you put electrodes on a muscle and you measure the amount of electrical activity within the muscle. Um, so as it contracts, there's a higher degree of electrical activity and you're measuring that across across a muscle. This is generally a proxy for uh, motor unit activation, which which is basically the um, which includes the activation of muscle fibers or the recruitment of muscle fibers. So where we see higher uh, EMG readings, um, that's generally a perception that there are more motor units being activated and more muscle fibers being recruited. So what you're finding then when you're comparing multi-joint exercises, the single joint exercise, you're finding that the EMG activation is the same regardless? Uh, we found that the EMG was pretty similar, um, and there was uh, a couple of studies. Um, there was a study that springs to mind with the lower body for this, for EMG, actually, where we found, um, you know, very similar activation in the quadriceps, whether you're performing a leg press or a knee extension. So, yeah, the, the, the muscle activation seemed to be pretty similar, perhaps marginally higher for um, for single joint movements, uh, which is which is something that bodybuilders will lean against uh, to say, oh, well, there's higher motor unit recruitment. But if I take away from, uh, or if I start to detract from uh, electromyography, it's only an acute measure. So it's only a snapshot in time. So, so whilst it might imply um, a measurement of muscle activation, uh, which is, like I said, is only a proxy, or, or sorry, it might, might give a measure of muscle activation, it only gives a proxy for motor unit recruitment and muscle fiber recruitment and doesn't give any guidance towards uh, muscle fiber adaptation, uh, both for strength or muscle cross-sectional area. So surface EMG is a great tool for scientists to play with. But, but I you know, constantly tell practitioners, honestly, it doesn't mean a lot in the real world. What you want to look at is, is, is chronic studies and, and that have looked at uh, muscle size and muscle strength. So you're saying that there is not a correlation between 
necessarily higher muscle activation or muscle recruitment towards uh, muscle hypertrophy or strength. Uh, yeah, I think that that's a fair. I think that's a fair comment. Um, I don't think that there is a good a good relationship between the two. Um, and, and like I said, it's a uh, surface like electromyography is really a snapshot in time. So um, it's logic suggests that if you see higher muscle activation, uh, and that does equate to motor unit activation and muscle fiber recruitment, then that exercise would be better for growth and strength. And it's completely logical to assume that. But the test is, well, instead of just looking at surface electromyography, let's look at the muscle. Did it get bigger and did it get stronger? And let's look at it over time rather than a snapshot. So let's look at it over 8, 10, 12, 24 weeks. And when we do that, we don't see differences. You also looked at, besides surface uh, level act activation, you also looked at muscle damage and fatigue, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And so was a correlation there. Like, for example, you found that uh, single joint uh, exercises, if I remember correctly, that the single joint exercises created uh, slightly more muscle damage and fatigue than the multiple joint exercises. Yet, once again, you didn't see much difference in hypertrophy or strength gains. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, the studies really, really do support that if you do a single joint movement, uh, then that's going to produce a greater fatigue in that muscle um, compared to a multi-joint movement. So if I do a, um, a bicep curl, then that's going to produce greater fatigue in the biceps than a pull-down exercise. Mm -hmm. um, that's what Brignoli's kind of his point is, though. Is, it, is that what maybe he's saying? And that's why he supports that? From what I can gather from the podcast that you did with Doug, uh, yeah, I think that's what he was getting at. And, and he talked a bit about muscle damage um, as a product of the single joint movements. But again, and, and this is moving out of my, my remit, it, muscle damage is a very, very big research area, and it's not my specific area. There's a, a guy called Felipe Damas over in um, Brazil who's a, an expert in this. And more recently, he suggested that, again, single measurements of muscle damage are really not a good indicator of long-term muscle growth. There needs to be a kind of a, a sustained – or there needs to be a sustained amount of muscle damage before the muscle will kind of consider – adding um, size to the to the myofibrils and adding size to the muscle. Um, and then, of course, there needs to be appropriate recovery between training sessions. So it's not uh, a, a single dose. I guess the, the trick is to figure out how to calculate what that dose is, how much damage is necessary, you know, and how like, much recovery and how much is necessary based on that damage. Well, these are the key questions because we can, we can all go into the gym and cause a massive amount of muscle damage or, or we go in way beyond what we need to do. And therefore, uh, you know, creating quite debilitating effects towards recovery. Um, and I think that this is where, you know, the high intensity, uh, training community, uh, are far more measured in their approach that you, take uh, that you uh perform a, a minimal amount of muscle damage a minimal stimulus uh, to promote recovery and adaptation yeah well being in the trenches for as many years as i've been training thousands mike and i training thousands of people uh it varies from individual as well you know so some people recover a lot faster than others some people can't even go that deep and, and, and get to that level of muscle fatigue so it's really becomes uh an observational thing and experience uh, as as an instructor to to figure out for the individual what what is best for them, how deep to go, how much inroad, uh, how much recovery, and and, fr and frequency as and well. Frequency. It's, it's uh, yeah. But getting back to the to, to the topic of compound versus simple movements, and of course this is related. Did you find that 
for compound movements, do you need more recovery than simple movements? Uh, if you did, let's say, for example, a, a workout that had all simple movements, and then you compared that to workouts that were primarily compound movements, and did you look at the recovery ability for each? Okay, you, you put me on the spot a bit now. I don't <laughs> recall whether we had a paper that had looked at the long-term response uh, mm. in fatigue. Uh, or discomfort. There is a paper that springs to mind again by I think a Brazilian guy uh, called uh, Suarez, I think it was, and he looked at uh, recovery in single joint movements. I think it was in the bicep curl, mm -hmm. and he sort of reported a high a high degree of DOMS and of muscle fatigue. At, you know, forty eight, and, and I think even extending to seventy two hours. So, but I, but I don't recall there being a study which compared single joint to multi-joint for that i might be i may be wrong if i go back and look at the paper it was published a couple of years back so well, is a, yeah, okay. well obviously this is a consideration and these are one of the questions that we that need to be answered over time as we do more research and exercise mm -hmm. so a lot of question marks obviously yeah so in conclusion let, let's let's wrap this up i just wanted to ask now about application so here we find that that it doesn't seem that there is much of a difference between uh, the effectiveness of, of simple joint movements versus compound movements. So would you therefore suggest that people, if they wanted to work out or trainers as they train their clients, do they do primarily, do you recommend that primarily do the multi-joint exercises over the single joint, mix them up, alter, or what? So, so to wrap up the research, um, it generally suggests that there are no greater adaptations to performing single joint in addition to multi-joint exercises, that, that really multi-joint exercises are sufficient, um, with the exception of uh, the lumbar extensors. So uh, I've performed uh, or I've conducted a few studies where we've looked at the low back and we've used the MedEx medical lumbar extension machine. Uh, we've looked at deadlifts, we've looked at squats, we've looked at hip thrusts, um, we've looked at kettlebell swings and we found that all of these as multi-joint movements don't provide sufficient stimulus to uh, increase the strength of the lumbar extensors. So it looks like this muscle, because of the nature of the pelvic rotation and therefore the activation of the glutes and the hamstrings, this muscle does need specific uh, training, isolated training. And we might find the same thing is true for other muscles. For example, the gastronemius uh, might not get sufficient stimulus from a leg press or a squat exercise. But at the moment, the preponderance of evidence suggests that multi-joint exercises are sufficient. Now, the way I pitch this from a practical perspective is that a trainer or a, a trainee should always perform multi-joint or compound movements first in their workout. So if you said to me, you've only got one workout to do today, well, I might do a deadlift or a leg press. Uh, if you said you've got two workouts, I might add a chest press or an overhead press. A third, a third exercise might be another compound movement. A fourth might be an, an additional compound movement. So I'm prioritizing in the first maybe four or five exercises, compound movements. Now, if people feel like they can do four or five compound movements to a high enough intensity of effort to stimulate good adaptation and they want to do more, well, then they might move into targeting the biceps with a bicep curl or the deltoids with a lateral raise uh, or the quadriceps with a knee extension. And I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with that if they want to perform a higher volume of training. But I think you're really dealing with the minutiae of adaptation there. I think you're probably going to get 
most of the adaptations from the multi-joint, and then at the best, maybe a little bit more from the single joint. But of course, we have to remember that those single joint movements might incur a greater degree of fatigue and discomfort, which might um, prevent uh, a workout sooner, uh, the next workout being sooner rather than later. Right, recovery. And uh, yeah. I also think you mentioned that there is a place for single joint movements, for example, to correct muscular imbalances. So it's not like we're throwing single joint uh, movements out. You know, it, they do have their place. Uh, and also, like you said, there are certain muscle groups, like maybe the calves and biceps. And uh, I do want to know, by the way, as a bit of a plug, when you talked about the lumbar MedX machines, all our informed fitness studios have the MedX lumbar machines in order to isolate the lumbar and fix the hips in place, because that is a very difficult muscle group to isolate and therefore strengthen. And we've, we've known that for years, and, and that's why we have those machines at Inform Fitness. <laughs> a little shameless plug right there. Yeah, to be honest, it's one of the most important machines that exists in resistance training. With the research we've done, we see huge strength increases, even in um, you know competitive powerlifters that can squat 300-something kilos, uh, you know, 700, 800 pounds, um, that have you know a, a low back no stronger than mine. Um, and for clarity, I don't squat those kind of weights. <laughs> <laughs> right. You are a big, strong guy, though, so uh, you're very modest as well. Thank All you. Right, well, thank you so much, James. That was great. What's next? What's, what's, what's next for the research in this? Are you doing anything else right now? Yeah, so we've done another study looking at this where we've looked at, uh, so I said most of the research was upper body. Uh, we've done um, another study looking at this in the lower body, and it's not published yet, so I generally don't, don't get into too much detail. But we had a group that performed uh, knee extension and leg curl exercise, and a group that performed only leg press exercise. Um, and, uh, and as the spoiler, we found that uh, both groups made You're hearing similar- it here first, folks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, both groups made, um, in fact, what they did is the participants trained one leg with knee extension and leg curl and one leg with leg press. And we found that, and, and that's quite a nice research design because it accommodates kind of nutritional variants or uh, sleep variants, uh, genetic variants, things like that. And we found similar adaptations between both groups. Both groups improved uh, to a significant increase, uh, to a significant amount on all the single joints of both the knee extension and the leg curl and on the leg press, irrespective of what exercises they did. We could use this to say, well, maybe this allows variety. Maybe for the next eight weeks, all I need to do is train on a leg press. But after that, maybe I can do a knee extension and a leg curl. For like your committed trainer, a trainee rather, who's in there to to you know to get strong or whatever, our long-term people, I think variability is actually very important. And, psychologically, uh, yeah. psychologically, yeah. why not? Yeah, yes. you know, and, and there's no difference one way or the other. Why not, right? Again, James, thank you so much. Dr. Fisher. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. This has been the Inform Fitness Podcast with Adam Zickerman. For over 20 years, Inform Fitness has been providing clients of all ages with customized personal training designed to build strength fast. Visit informfitness.com for testimonials, blogs, and videos on the three pillars, exercise, nutrition, and recovery.